Welcome to Into Theology. I'm Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, my, my co-host. And we're looking at John Calvin's uh, Institutes. We're in Book 2, Chapter 8, and this is the discussion on the Ten Commandments, which is uh, kind of like a, I would say, like a really common location for theological discussion in the Reformed Church. You have it in catechisms. Uh, it's just commonly talked about. Maybe less so today. I mean, sometimes we get in sermons, but I doubt most church membership classes will uh, go through the Ten Commandments as part of what they're they're doing when we enter the church. Now, with my, guess is, my guess is those de- those Reformed denominations that really take serious the creeds and the confessions hmm. probably are more likely to do it than like your average. You know, if we still use the term young, restless, and reformed, I don't know if that's a thing anymore. But those that kind of group, my my guess is probably not as much. Yeah, that's a good point. So probably some of the traditionally confessional groups would still do it. Um, we, we talked about a passage that we found really interesting in this chapter. So I don't know if you want to open and read it from chapter 8 in section 55 there, what Calvin says about love. We found it fascinating. Yeah, because it really, in a way, kind of encapsulates everything that he's really going to say about the Ten Commandments, right? That he references this, this law of love or law of charity uh, throughout this whole chapter. And so, yeah, it's a great one because you don't, when you think of Calvin, you're thinking of this kind of stodgy, stern guy. Um, and, uh, and yet here he's telling us that we need to embrace love. Um, so here, yeah, at the very top of 419. So um, in that little kind of section there that starts with, but I say, I'll just read there to the end of the section. So Calvin says, but I say, uh, we ought to embrace the whole human race without exception in a single feeling of love. Here, there's no distinction between barbarian and Greek, worthy and unworthy, friend and enemy, since all shall be con- uh, sh- since all should be contemplated in God, not in themselves. When we turn aside from such contemplation, it is no wonder we become entangled in many errors. Therefore, if we rightly direct our love, we must first turn our eyes not to man, the sight of whom would more often engender hate than love, but to God, who bids us extend to all men the love we bear to him that this may be an unchanging principle. Whatever the character of the man, we must yet love him because we love God. Now, there's all kinds of stuff that could be said here. I mean, just just like that, I mean, that should be on placards on, you know, we should be walking down the streets with all these protesters, you know, reminding people, hey, these are fellow human beings that we're dealing with here when you're either destroying their property or forcing them to do things they ought not to do. Or when we're talking about our political opponents, whether Democrat or Republican or whatever else, um, it's like he's saying here, all people, all people, mm-hmm. even if they're not worthy of it, are supposed to be loved fully in one single feeling of love because it's directed to the one God ultimately. And yeah, and he, that's, he's a, that's important. He's about to criticize people for uh, not really like wanting to love their enemies and, and, and saying, you know, you need to. Uh, this is kind of an evangelical call. It's from Christ himself, love your enemies. And it encapsulates the, at least the second tablet of the law. Yeah. But I guess it also encapsulates the first side of the law too. Right. Because we love people because of God in them. Yeah. And so to, and kind of together, you're right. It does kind of summarize what he's trying to say. And I think you're right in it. Well, in all times, but really right now, we can look at our ideological opponents and, and view them as enemies because they vote differently or have different ethics or, you know, or whatever they, they do, which we feel could be evil. And yet we should have the language he uses a single feeling of love, which I think is probably impossible apart from the Holy spirit. Yeah. 
Um, I think bitterness takes too deep of a root apart from the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So it's an, it's an interesting thing that he gets at. Yeah, there's two other thoughts that I have on it too. Yep. Um, one is how profoundly Augustinian this is in terms of mm-hmm. like rightly ordering rightly your loves. Ordered, yeah. And then this, the whole idea that like, you know, if we, we need, we, we should love in proportion to what is worthy of it or is valued. And so because God, God is of infinite value, then the highest direction our loves ought to point towards is him where we can set our love upon that, which is most valuable. And then everything's rightly ordered under that. Uh, yet because we're seeing it in, we're seeing God in these people are arguably because of the image of God, uh, that is actually a rightly ordering of our loves. That's why we love our enemies because God's image is in them. And so therefore we're actually loving God by loving them. Now loving here obviously isn't some schmaltzy hallmark or letting them get away with things like to love. It's an expression of love to restrain evil in people. And that's why laws and justice and those things are important. Yeah. But the, the motivation has to actually be out of love, not out of revenge or anything like that. And I think and the that- second thing is, Oh, go ahead. Go on. No, I was going to say that. Well, maybe I'll just note for you a second one. That yeah. reference to, to a well-ordered love in Augustine, probably in many places, but it's also in City of God. Can't remember yeah. the chapter offhand, but it's probably around 8 or chapter, chapter 8 or 11, maybe. Anyways, go for your second observation. Um, the second one is I think Calvin actually models this. He probably didn't model it perfectly. Um, but, you know, he often gets accused, you know, of being in, complicit in the Servetus uh, mm-hmm. execution, which he was. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but he demonstrated a real kind of love for Servetus all the way through, um, even though he recognized him as a heretic and, you know, or, you know, supported the execution. But he would, you know, early on when Servetus had first contact with him, Calvin actually went to meet him once and Servetus never showed up. Uh, and then um, I don't think that was in Geneva either. And then when he's in Geneva, Servetus shows up and though he gets, you know, thrown in prison and, and executed, Calvin's remonstrating with him, meeting with him of trying to convince him, you know, of, of Trinitarianism. And so you can see here that even in, a, in an arch heretic, like a, like a Unitarian, like Servetus, Calvin's still trying to help. It's um, interesting. You know. It reminds me, uh, if you look at the letters of Augustine, uh, you see that he has correspondence with Pla- Pelagius. Yep. And while there are, pu- the public dialogue of theology is pretty strong. Um, you know, Augustine's always expressing brotherly love. For Plagius yeah, he, in, he didn't in his actually, letters. His initial response was, let's treat, let's tread lightly here and see if we can win him. Yeah. And I think he probably kept it up. I think eventually there's there's stronger words you have to protect people from serious heresy. But yeah. I think there's there's a real sense in which you can love someone. And uh, even when the, yeah, I, was just, I was just reading before this, actually, um, Polycarp, his letter to the Philippians. And he talks about an elder, I think Valens, who fell away. Yeah. And it makes this really interesting point that, like, uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but the idea is, like, you, you should love him as, like, a wayward brother. <laughs> this yeah. is not like an enemy. Yeah. And so this is just, this is rooted in the kind of apostolic teaching, rooted in scripture, rooted in the reality that we should love our neighbors ourselves, rooted in the reality that we should love people who are they're worthy of our love because God is most worthy of love and God is in, in all people via the image of God. Yeah. Which I'm thinking is the implication here, but I don't know if it is in Calvin. Uh, generally speaking, let's kind of just back off for a second. Um, Calvin, how, how does Calvin view the Ten Commandments? Are they relevant for the Christian life, or or was he a dispensationalist? <laughs> and I, I know there's different views, and I'm making a joke. I know there's dispensationalists who still think it's well, a I laughed. Nature, so. 
Um, he tells us actually a little bit before, right, in uh, in book seven, right at the very beginning, he, uh, or sorry, chapter seven of book two on page 48, he tells us the purpose of the law, right, which the law is entirely Christocentric. Uh, it's not just the Ten Commandments, it's really the whole system. Uh, and uh, and so he's kind of like pointing us forward. The law has these, these ceremonies and everything, but everything really points to and is ultimately going to be fulfilled in Christ, right? The law functions as as the tutor uh, to help us uh, as we kind of go astray. Um, it's not, it, the law has its kind of, he describes it as a kind of like a feebleness to it. And then he goes through the third, three uses of the law, all that kind of stuff, right? So that's, that's all previous uh, to here. And then he gets into talking about the Ten Commandments itself, in the very beginnings of chapter eight, and uh, and then tells us really like the correspondence between the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words themselves, and what we already have in our conscience, what's there in nature, and uh, and so and all of this is going to like point us towards having right knowledge of God so that we could rightly worship Him. The the the, the natural law is not sufficient to help us worship God rightly, not because there's a flaw in that but because there's a flaw in us therefore the ten commandments are kind of like added to it to help us direct our worship right. more specifically so that to and, me and then every, and then everything all points us towards then christ and and i also detected uh a phrase that would be used two years later in the belgic confession uh, a clearer witness or th that idea anyways it's really interesting so calvin thinks this moral law is already written on our hearts it's engraved there but we're dull we're sinful and therefore, God gave us or published the Ten Commandments. Uh, this is page 368 near the bottom, chapter 8, section 1. Uh, as a clear witness of what was too obscure in the natural law. Yeah. And I, I think you're going to see that. There's going to be this sort of double revelation of God in nature and revelation. One less clear and one more clear. Um, and I, if I remember right, the Belgian Confession is, is pretty tied to Kelvin. I don't remember why. Yeah. And I think that I just it's in my head. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Guido Debray. Now, you talked about like this third use, the idea that the law is, is for Christians, it's for our use. And one of the really interesting things that I noticed in Calvin is that the way he gets there, it might be different than other people, but the way that Calvin gets there is at least in part on the basis of the nature of God. So in chapter 7, he already mentions that the law has kind of a, a spiritual purpose because God is spirit. I mean, he's not a, a body. So on page 349 of chapter 7, he talks about, uh, we really shouldn't take the call of the law literally. Uh, it's a shadow, it's a figure, and it's meant to lift our minds higher. And then he says, this also can be, uh, can be clearly discerned from his own nature, God's nature. For as it is spiritual, only spiritual worship delights him. And he really says a very similar thing in this section too, in chapter 8 on page 367. We have an inward law, then he switched to the next page. Um, oops. I lost that place. He had a, another place yeah, of uh, spiritualness. Maybe I. Yeah, he, he makes an inward. He, he's regularly making an inward outward distinction. Okay. It's, it was page yeah. 372, section six. There you go. Um, right. Near the bottom, it says, But God, whose eye nothing escapes, and who is concerned not so much with outward appearance as with purity of heart, under the prohibition of fornication, murder, and theft, forbids lust, anger, hatred, coveting a neighbor's possessions, deceit, and the like. For since he is a spiritual lawgiver, he speaks no less to the soul than to the body. But murder that is of the soul consists in anger and hatred, theft and evil covetousness and avarice, fornication and lust. 
so his point is, look, we're we're a uh, a double a double sided reality of body and soul, and God is spirit, and he's appealing, yeah, of course, to the physical things. You shouldn't actually murder someone; that's real bad. But there's a real sense in which your soul, your spirit, is committing murder if you if you hate someone. Yeah. And it's funny; he doesn't just go straight to Jesus, but it's I suppose he's thinking this is the underlying logic that Jesus has. One moment. All right, we're back. We had a, uh, a a bunch of kids running down to me, so we paused it just momentarily here. But long story short, Calvin has this view that God is a spiritual lawgiver, and therefore is appealing to the spiritual side of us as well as to the material side through the law. And we should then look into the law to figure out what it actually is saying by understanding the, the reason behind the laws. Yeah. And then he kind of dives to what, what he calls... Um, something like a deeper sense. I don't know if you want to discuss this on page 374 in section 8. I don't know if you looked at this um, carefully, but he, he's really doing kind of a hermeneutical exploration here. And he talks about how the law has a synecdoche, this idea of part for the whole. Yep. And I guess the part would be the physical and the whole would be the sort of whole spiritual reality. Oh, he's also talking about it in terms of like, these are prohibitions um, and then mm. tied to them are assumed kind of blessings. And things okay, like that. good. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. He, oh, go ahead. Well, just, no, you go. You, I, yeah, I was just talking, so you, you jump in. Yeah, well, he does. Um, you had mentioned there just before the little edit had to happen um, about, you know, likely tying it into Jesus. He actually does get into like, you know, you, you know, you might not murder somebody, but if you actually have hatred in your heart, that might, that that actually constitutes murder. Um, he, he actually does have a section, I can't remember where, where he goes through those key texts of Jesus. So it's like he makes an argument for it, and then he says, yeah, and Jesus actually agrees <laughs> uh, with it. <laughs> Good backup. And yeah, like, it, it's interesting, right? Like, this whole idea, I mean, when we were discussing this before we actually started recording, you mentioned the whole idea of faculty psychology. Um, and it's like, yeah, like, there's this, there's this two-sidedness to us. We're spirit, we're body. Um, but there's a sense where, like, there's a primacy to our souls or our spirits, however you want to describe it or mind and um and so that's where like the locus of real obedience is going to come in we can do things externally he notes it he's going to go right on after that that quote that you just read uh on the very on the very top of 373 he's just uh human laws are kind of like this too right we can obey them externally and yet you know um internally just because we're abstaining from something it doesn't mean that that's a, a sign of our character mm. um might not, he says, we're going to sleep with a prostitute, but it doesn't mean that we're not lustful within our hearts. And so the real issue then of the Ten Commandments, which is because he says he uses the language too, right? When he's talking about the natural law on 368, he says that even it is engraved, just like the Ten Commandments are engraved on stone, the natural law is engraved in our hearts. Yeah. And, um, and so when we perform human laws, you know, we could do them without our hearts being affected at all. And uh, and so that then becomes, as you sa said, in the exposition of each of the Ten Commandments, he's like, we've got to go deeper. We've got to go beyond mere externals. The externals are pointing us, helping us hmm. to the spiritual uh, in each of these. And so, yeah, it's, it's super helpful because then you could you could boast and say, well, well, I'm not stealing anybody's money, but you might be very covetous and jealous other people's stuff all the time and so it's like well you're not really following the law just because you keep the externals of it right yeah and he's going to get to the kind of the christocentric way of understanding the law at the end i believe um there, like he there says are... right here right in, in sorry i think you alluded to this but 
374, right in section eight there, he says, let this be our second observation. The commandments and prohibitions always contain more than is expressed in words. And yeah. then he gives you the lesbian rule is what he calls it. Yeah, the lesbian is rule is kind of the, the thing I have an exclamation <laughs> point next to. It's a reference to the island of Lesbos uh, that Aristotle spent time on and when he was writing the Nicomachean Ethics. Yeah. So it's got a funny different different application in our day than it does. Yeah, it doesn't quite hit the ear the same way. It might have hit yeah. people in 16th century Europe. Yeah. Um, okay, that's all That's all interesting. Uh, there, there are then this kind of uh, exposition of these Ten Commands and then their, their purpose, their reason for being there, which is more than merely the kind of surface grammar, I guess you could put it that way. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't go beyond or contradict it. It's just it goes beyond in a very fitting way. It, it's pointing forward. It's pointing forward, yeah. Um, just, you, just in as much as it does point forward in terms of typology and fulfillment in Christ, like he's going to get into that whole discussion, right? Of like, of uh, of the the Sabbath and the problem with the Sabbath, he's you know some people will say, oh, if you if you have Sabbath observance, you're just going back to the law, and he's like, well, no, you can observe the Sabbath in a way that you don't have to go back to Judaism to do it. Under Judaism, you're observing a Sabbath as a shadow. In Christianity, now you observe the Sabbath as the fulfillment, and so you can still just don't go back like the Hebrews were doing, right. the, the audience, the, the writer of the Hebrews is addressing, don't go back and observe the Sabbath in a way where you're still under the shadows. Do it in a way now where you recognize, right. because of the resurrection, he says, you're recognizing now the fullness in Christ. For the fulfillment. One thing I found fascinating um, was when he's talking about the, uh, the Sabbath, he actually sees a threefold meaning to what the Sabbath command is yeah. about. And I think that's yeah. important. I think sometimes we're locked into this sort of... Um, 19th century idea of single meaning in scripture. Yeah. I don't think Calvin is, or reform people in general are. Uh, I think the idea of a complex meaning is, is probably a, a better way to describe reformed understanding. It's not that there's various meanings that are contradictory, but that scripture conveys itself in a very complex way. So yeah. you can have uh, more than one meaning in a, in a text that's always there and, and kind of obvious upon spiritual reflection. So I try to figure out the page, but one of them yeah, is I know the you're talking about Christ. Uh, 395. Section 28. Yeah, there they are right there. Yeah. Right uh, the so he says, uh, hence, we must go deeper in our exposition and ponder three conditions in which it seems to me the keeping of this commandment consists. So this is sort of a deeper reflection on what it means. It says, first, under the repose of the seventh day, the heavenly law giver meant to represent to the people of Israel spiritual rest in which believers ought to lay aside their own works to allow God to work in them. That's actually pretty profound, just that. Yeah. Secondly, he meant that there was to be stated, um, sorry, to be a stated day for them to assemble, to hear the law and perform the rites, or at least to devote in particularly to meditation upon his works, and thus through this remembrance to be trained in piety. Thirdly, he resolved to give a day of rest to his servants and those who are under the authority of others, in order that they should have some respite from toil. Anyways, there's more to it that he said. I just kind of find it interesting that he has this kind of complex, threefold understanding of how to understand the the intent of the law. Yeah, and it's interesting, right? It's there is there's a cessation from work for spiritual purposes, so that you could be, as he says here, trained in piety, so that you focus on God. Hmm. And there's also a cessation of it for for servants, um, so that they don't have to work, you know, right. and that they can do those sorts of things too. And, uh, and so, you know, he recognizes a stated day. He doesn't, he's, he's, he sees the importance of a seven pattern, it seems like. Mm -hmm. um, but he's kind of, he seems like he's okay with whatever that seven might be. 
Although right. it's, he's saying like, there's definitely this pattern. You see it in Paul, you see it in John in the revelation that there's a day that's kind of like set apart that Christians were worshiping right. on. Um, and he's, and he wants to kind of keep that up. And, and it seems like he would say kind of on a pragmatic level, well, if the church is everywhere observing Sunday, then that's what we ought to do. Yeah. The first day of the week. Too intense about it. But. Now it's interesting. You mentioned this, that he, Calvin views the law as kind of forward pointing. And he has a really great one sentence summary on page 400. Yeah, it's uh, awesome. Section 34. It says this, to sum up, as truth was delivered to the Jews under a figure, so is it set before us without shadows. And I, I found that, I mean, Calvin's really good at these kind of one or two sentence summaries, isn't he? I yeah. mean, you can, whatever is like the twofold blessing of justification, all that kind of stuff he'll eventually get into. And this is interesting, and I think it's important to realize that the law itself has a sort of shadow or figural meaning yeah. that's fulfilled in Christ. I mean, earlier, I think in chapter 7, he talks about how the law and the sacrifice of the cult are, are a little bit like, they don't make sense or by themselves. They only make sense when thought from a Christological point of view. I mean, they're meant to yeah. bring our minds up to God through this sort of spiritual sacrifice. Um you had an observation about one of the commandments, the sort of four generations of punishment versus thousands of grace. Maybe yeah. we could just mention that one before we kind of get to the concluding part of the podcast. Cause we can't, we're not going to have obviously time to go through page. No. By page it's a section. big section. There's a yeah. well, 10 commandments and he, and he, he riffs on things like this. Yeah. I loved uh, in the, in the discussion of the second commandment um, about not having, not worshiping images of God. Uh, he talks about how that there's like these attendant curses that come if you do this, right? And the curses actually, um, it's actually quoted here. So right at the very beginning of 18, on page 384, he says, uh, I, Jehovah, your God, am a God who is jealous, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of those who hate my name, but showing mercy to thousands, those who love me and keep my commandments really helpful i mean it's funny because i have notes in here from the last time i read the institute hmm. and uh it was just kind of funny how i'd forgotten but like there was it was really helpful his whole description of you know this this how can you punish down to four generations for the sins of the father hmm. uh, does that go against the idea of god's justice and he says no it actually doesn't he quotes from ezekiel 1820 on on the lower on section 19 there on page 385 uh, he says god himself also declares he will not compel the son to bear the father's iniquity so he's saying no god's not doing that what he's doing is is that just as the father is sinful he's going to raise his kid up to be sinful who will raise his kid up to be sinful who and he says they all kind of run headlong into this kind of like disobedience and that's the god punishing them and quite frankly he's only he's only doing that if that process is ongoing he's only doing that for four generations but then the comparison is with the blessing that comes here in this in the second commandment is that he shows mercy to thousands uh, who love me and keep my commands. And so it's like there's this four generations here, thousands in terms of getting the mercy, you know. And so it's it's not actually against any notion of God's justice, but it really magnifies his mercy. No, I think that's helpful. And even just kind of step back for a second, if if God's retribution is fourfold or four generations and his mercy and grace is a thousand it's pretty obvious what has the weight here yeah. mercy and grace yeah. um and so i think it's sometimes we look at the law and we in one sense rightly see a sort of sternness to it yeah but when you gaze at it longer you actually see i think 
the weight of grace. And there's not, there's not going to be a contradiction between how God is in the Old Testament and how God is in Christ Jesus. Yeah. It was interesting um, when you and I, when you, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just saying, sometimes it's easy to make that bifurcation between the Old and New Testament. One is law and one is really yeah. just grace, but it's the same under kind of different modes of revelation. So sorry, yeah, you were going to say? Administrations as the uh, Westminster Confession says. I was going to, I was going to note actually what you said to me too, before um, we started recording about this, uh, the whole idea of like the significance of a thousand there too is important, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, I can't remember this. Like in the Psalms, for example, it's paralleled with uh, forever. And yeah. so a thousand here is in one sense, it's, it's kind of an idiom in the Old Testament for a thousand years or whatever it is, a thousand generations rather, for like forever. It's God's grace is infinite versus his punishment, which is here kind of finite. Yeah. has a, a, an end after four. It terminates. Yeah. And so whatever's being intended here, at the very minimum, it's God's grace is, there's grace upon grace in God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and his punishment is not forever. So I think that's helpful. Um, as we start to get closing down, I think on page 415, you have another really cool summary by Calvin on section right. 51. Yeah, the whole purpose, right? Yeah, it says, now it will not be difficult to decide the purpose of the whole law, which is a bit of an understatement. I mean, <laughs> I think it might be not difficult, that, but okay. Not that difficult. <laughs> and then he says, here it is, the fulfillment of righteousness to form human life, the archetype of divine purity. Uh, by the way, he says elsewhere, I can't remember the section, that when you ask what the image of God is, it's nothing else but Jesus. <laughs> I have to wonder if archetype here uh, is, is he's thinking Christologically, but I'm not sure. He might just be it, thinking more generically about God. Maybe, but it's just, again, it, maybe it's because I'm teaching, I've just been teaching ancient medieval philosophy at CCU this semester. Mm. It's like, I can't stop seeing this stuff like everywhere, you know? And it's like, it, this to me, it's like the whole idea of, forming human life into this archetype just fits with like the kind of ancient notion of what you know the pursuit of the good is mm -hmm. you know is that you're to be oriented towards the good and uh and that true happiness or as aristotle calls it eudaimonia is really about living a flourishing life virtuously and as the stoics say that's in conformity with what nature and reality is and so he's i think he's taking the augustinian twist on ancient thought here and he's saying that, like, listen, like the whole purpose of the law is that actually so that you can be happy or that you could be fulfilled, that you could live virtuously or you just live in conformity to this divine purity, which is, I think you're right. That archetype is, is obviously fulfilled in Christ. So it's kind yeah. of neat. How well, no, I mean, I think even Augustine is a big influence and Augustine would yeah. really see the logos, that sort of that archetypical form of God as being that that kind of what you're referring to anyway. So and I, it's and again, pretty obvious. Archetypes, that, archetypes are again are immaterial, right? Right. Like you have the archetype of the temple in heaven uh, that everything here is patterned after. Yeah. And here you have this archetype of divine purity, which again, it's not, it's that spiritual element that comes in. It's, it's not merely about bodily conformity, although it's not, not that, but like it's, it is this spiritual element that's much deeper. Yeah. And uh, we are meant to, uh, you mentioned uh, eudaimonia, but uh, the idea of just kind of living the happy or good life yep. by pursuing what is ultimately good. So at the end of the, you, you, know, you know you're happy, but that when you die, you can reflect backwards and think I lived a good life. Yeah. Not by necessarily the emotion of happiness at every instant of life, yeah. but by really having ordered your life after the right ends. And 
pretty obvious for Kelvin if you want free will. Free will is when your intellect and your will is directed after God. Yeah. And you're living a flourishing life. So I think that's probably there. It might be implicit in Calvin's system, but it's definitely there to some degree. Yeah. It might be useful to kind of end on thinking about um, section 57. And one of the unique things that Calvin does is he makes what's real in the monastery uh, democratic for the church, uh -huh. meaning the high ideals of the monastic life, that kind of uh, elite Christianity that was maybe going around that time, it's something that, that uh, Calvin thinks is for everyone. So he, he says, um, well, he says a lot here, but one thing he says at the, uh, kind of in the middle of uh, page 420, 421, to the very bottom, 420, and how stupidly they argue, this would, they say, be a burden too heavy for Christians, as if we could think of anything more difficult than to love God with, with all our heart and our soul and all of our strength. And he's earlier comparing monks in the church, and I think the idea is, I have to read it more carefully, but what some people thought was this higher life that was reserved for really kind of elite Christianity is for all Christians. And yeah. there's a sense in which he's kind of implying a sort of re regenerate Christianity, like someone actually can do this. Yeah. yeah um, it's not a burden too heavy. He says it's not a burden too heavy. Um, so there's more to it, but I think that's important. I mean, all that's kind of being said in the 10 commandments, all that's being said about love in that quote that you opened up with earlier at the beginning of the podcast is something all of us can achieve yeah. and the law is spiritual, but we have spirit of God and are empowered by him. Any kind of final yeah. words before we, we cut off for today? Yeah. He just says to be Christians under the law of grace does not mean to want wander unbridled outside the law, but to be engrafted in Christ by whose grace we are free of the curse of the law and by whose spirit we have the law engraved upon our hearts. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, <laughs> like under the term law, these men are philosophizing about nothing. <laughs> he's talking about this one. <laughs> yeah, he's some pretty good one-liners, doesn't he? He's great. <laughs> well, this is a, I mean, if you've not really thought through the Ten Commandments before, this would be a, a good place to maybe dive in and look at it. Uh, it. It ends up being pretty normal, as we said, in the Reformed Confessions and things to have discussions on the Ten Commandments, or at least Reformed Catechism. And Catechesis, too, right? Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting section. It's, it makes sense that he would spend so much time on it. Um, I think it's, it's wonderful and important to realize the law is spiritual and that it's meant to guide us in the Christian life. I think ignoring that reality is, is a big problem and yep. it can lead to antinomianism. Yep. Um, so that was a section next week. We're going to jump into chapters nine and 10. I haven't looked ahead, so I don't know what they're about. <laughs> um, I think they'll be interesting to jump into. Um, so thanks Ian for today and we'll talk to you next week.